This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Roger Scruton has been, for the last quarter century or more, one of the most prominent and influential public intellectuals in the English-speaking world. He is currently adjunct scholar of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. He also has served as a fellow of Blackfriars Hall in Oxford and is research professor for the Institute for Psychological Studies. He is a writer, philosopher, and public commentator. His many books are among the most influential in the fields of philosophy and cultural studies, and it is a great honor to welcome Dr. Roger Scruton to Thinking in Public. Dr. Scruton, welcome. We're very glad to have this conversation. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. You are, first of all, at least in my mind, a philosopher. I have used your modern philosophy text in my modern theology classes. How would you describe the, the modern world as, as you just try to situate it in the larger frame of thought, uh, that something came before modern philosophy, and perhaps you would argue something has come after? Where, where are we in terms of the stream of Western thinking? Well, that's a, a very leading question. Uh, obviously, the modern period, as we understand it, is something which is, came into existence in the 17th century with the rising consciousness of Europe uh, of its own peculiar destiny and also the, the, the birth of modern science and the, the kind of public culture of, of skepticism towards traditional religious forms. And I think partly that was a, a result of the um, religious conflicts of the 17th century. Uh, but uh, I think there was a, a st- slow, steady opening up of the human spirit to uh, to doubt and hesitation to, to multiple views and so on, ending with what we have today, which is a kind of uh, open-ended um, relativism about everything, which is what people mean by postmodern. Now, let me ask you, just in terms of that postmodern mood of, uh, of modern thinking, uh, right, rightly reduced to its relativistic core, was it inevitable given the project of modern philosophy? I don't think it was. If you, I mean, modern philosophy began in the early days of the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment, whatever its um, faults, it had as its fundamental concern the pursuit of objective truth and of, uh, and of standards which enable us to de- determine the difference between truth and falsehood, validity and invalidity, and good and evil, and so on. And um, I think of postmodernism as a kind of betrayal of that cause. Where I don't do you... think it was inevitable. I think, uh, you know, to a great extent, those people most charged with educating the young in the in our world, as I say, the universities, have um, backed off from the duty of of teaching the difference between the objective and the subjective. Where do you see this postmodern movement in in philosophy and modern thought going? It, it it appears to have something of a nihilistic end, rather written into the DNA of its thinking structures. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, obviously, uh, a movement which says that there is no distinction between right and wrong or true and false is not a movement that you can take seriously because everything it says contradicts itself. And I think that. Uh, that this has led to increasing disillusion with higher education and, and um, with the, you know, the, the attempts to teach uh, the curriculum as we have known it in the past. 
Now, when you're thinking of modern philosophy, where do you situate your own trajectory of thought? How, how would you place yourself within that context of modern thought? Well, I, I was an undergraduate at Cambridge in the uh, 1960s, and um, I was fell very strongly under the influence of the um, uh, philosophy that was taught there, which was analytical philosophy, which many people dismiss as merely verbal you know, playing with words and so on. But I, I was very much influenced by the emphasis on, on logic, uh, on uh, the idea of a valid argument, uh, and uh, um, in particular the work of Wittgenstein had a, an influence. But uh, during the course of my time there, I, I discovered uh, the philosophy of Kant, uh, and um, that since then has been, I think, the major influence on me. I want to turn later to your work on conservatism, but one word you use, uh, one uh, argument you use in, in your book on the meaning of conservatism is you say that to be conservative is always to be on the defensive, or at least in terms of the cultural uh, attitude. Uh, I wonder if the same is true for the theist. Uh, in your work, Modern Philosophy, you deal with God and uh, the problem of the knowledge of God. And uh, I just have to, to ask you straightforwardly, is, is, is it your thinking that uh, – that the modern project of thought uh, definitely puts theism on the defensive. Well, the Enlightenment put theism on the defensive. That's that's true, yes. Um, but of course, uh, the, the question is, uh, you know, the, the, what what exactly you are defending. Uh, my own view is that um, that you, there will always be that inclination to believe which um which will resurge however however many defeats it suffers in the in the short term because it is a it concerns our long-term sense of who and what we are well then let me ask if you think it's possible to ground any modern worldview without reference to theism in other words let me just ask you is is, is that in a sense kant's project well, it was it, uh, the, the project of grounding morality in reason alone. But he himself um, recognized that, uh, in some way, God kept coming back, as, uh, as it were, precipitated out of this enterprise. He was always there, and uh, the, the arguments get swept away into the world of illusion, but still the face of God is staring at him. Uh, and I think that... Um, Kant's story is a very interesting one, and it probably is the story of our times, that we're constantly attempting to ground our worldview in the capacities that we have for thinking and feeling, and always it falls short, and always we need that other thing, and so we come back to it without necessarily having any proof of it. Well, you know where Kant speaks of those two great mysteries that were the uh, the 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 great consuming questions of his life, the starry heavens above and the moral life within. Uh, yes. the, the theologian just has to come back to that and say, I, I rather dare you to try to answer those two questions without reference to, uh, to God, uh, to theism. But in one sense, modern philosophy has been uh, pretty much a straightforward attempt to do that. Uh, how would you judge the, the current state of philosophy as it's being taught in the university cultures? Well, difficult to generalize, obviously, because especially in America, you have so many different traditions. But um, in my tradition, which is the, the academic analytical philosophy, I would say it has um, 
gradually marginalized itself. It has become an academic special, specialism which has little or no relevance to the, the big questions that concern the individual and his own destiny uh, and his relation to the world. So I, I think it, has, um, it continues as a kind of uh, game, really, an intellectual game, which is fun for many people, but, of course, extremely frustrating for those who come to it wanting an answer. Stephen Hawking has recently argued that philosophy is dead because it, uh, it basically had its run and now it's completely left to science and to scientism to answer the great questions of life, including the meaning of life. I, I, is that kind of the bottom line of what happened to philosophy and at least the, the British universities? Well, um, if it is true, and I mean, you can see why he says it, it's the fault of the philosophers. It's not because philosophy as a discipline had to go that way. I think it's, um, it became an academic discipline and marked out for itself the places where it is safe to play, you know, uh, rather than those difficult areas where you have to go out fighting. You have a very elegant way of writing. It's one of the things that attracted me to your work. Uh, many philosophers are, I think, almost intentionally opaque. Uh, they may think that that's a, a, a something of an, a, of an academic achievement. Uh, you write with, uh, with a kind of elegance. The, the last sentence in your chapter on God and modern philosophy reads, clearly, they are real questions, and we cannot live as philosophers without some attitude towards them. And, and uh, I think that's a very elegant way of summing that up. Uh, I, I read your chapter on God, and one of the things that struck me is that uh, you certainly raise the questions, frame them in a classical philosophical framework, and, and put it out there. Uh, and you did so very effectively without with leaving the reader with no understanding of, of where you land on those questions. Right. Well, um, of course, the, the book is intended uh, to explore the questions and present them to the reader so that the reader begins to think. Um, uh, and uh, obviously putting my own position too emphatically might uh, put, the, put the, person, the reader off, you know. Uh, but my own, I suppose if I were to put my um, cards on the table, I would say I am a sceptical Anglican. I should say, I ha you know, I'm a Christian in the old English tradition, uh, always worrying about uh, whether this or that aspect of the Christian faith can really be, really hold up to the inter interrogations of reason, but nevertheless um, prepared to put my, um, put my heart there, never, you know, uh, while I while I am alive. In your chapter on God, and uh, it isn't in modern philosophy; it's in your your shorter work. You made an argument that I have to tell you, as a theologian, I, I have picked up and citing you have used many many times. Uh, and, and it's uh, somewhat, uh, I think, a rather unexpected argument to come from a philosopher, uh, certainly of, of your tradition. It's, uh, it's more of a phenomenological statement than nonetheless, I think, just uh, nails a very essential point. You said, and I'm paraphrasing you here, that if you really want to understand what, uh, what a community believes about God or, or what a, a faith system, for lack of wanting to just say a religion, believes about God – you argue you should pay some heed to their systematic theologies and their writings and all the rest, but you should pay primary attention to observing them at worship. And I thought that was a profound insight uh, from a philosopher. Well, that's kind of you to say that. I, I, I agree that that's, um, that is an important thought from, for me, uh, that uh, religion isn't simply a collection of doctrines. Many of the doctrines that are special to any particular faith 
are probably not understood entirely by, by those who belong to the faith, but what they do understand is the the relation between themselves and God and that how to put themselves into that relation and, and to uh, seek intimacy with God through prayer. Uh, and that is something which um, you, you know very well from the American experience. It's something that Americans are very, very good at. Hearing Roger Scruton's voice, it's important to remember that his voice, as uh, a metaphor for his influence, has been absolutely massive. First of all, in the United Kingdom, where he had a great deal of influence, not only in terms of the trajectory of academic philosophy in one sense, but also perhaps even more importantly in the popular culture and the, the larger culture where a public intellectual can make a real difference. A real difference, for instance, an influence on someone like uh, former British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. You can understand why his thoughts on conservatism might also be of tremendous importance. Let's turn to that. Among his many intellectual contributions, uh, Dr. Roger Scruton has made a tremendous contribution toward the definition of conservative thought. His thought originates on the other side of the pond, where in the United Kingdom, you can basically track something of the political realities on the ground through the 70s, 80s, and 90s and beyond by reading his writings. Dr. Scruton, you have identified yourself as a conservative, and you did so as a defender of conservative thought in what was at least in, uh, in, in both the United Kingdom and the United States a rather unpopular season for conservatives. How did you come to this philosophical stance? Well, I suppose it, it happened to me in Paris in, in 1968. When I confronted, I was just an ordinary apolitical uh, student or uh, postgraduate at the time, but I saw what the students were up to and this, this um, declaration of the Marxist worldview, anti-bourgeois agitation and all that, and I, I thought to myself, whatever these people believe, I believe the opposite. Uh, so I was going to, I set myself to find out what the opposite was, and that's when I I began to explore the paths of, uh, laid down by people like uh, Edmund Burke, Alexis de Tocqueville, and so on, uh, which um, define a completely different conception of what politics should be and how people should exist in communities. Uh, and I suppose it's been a question of just spelling it out for myself and been a voyage of intellectual discovery as well as of, um, of moral discovery. And your life and work has been rather intertwined with British politics to some extent. Tell us that story as well. Well, I, I certainly, I, I was very concerned when I, I realized that there was, a, there was another view from that of the liberal socialist establishment. I was very concerned that politicians should be, learn to articulate it. And I, I established something with a few friends of um, the conservative philosophy group back in 1974, the intention being to influence uh, par uh, members of parliament, uh, conservative members of parliament, to actually have a philosophy. Um, I have to say that <laughs> the attempt was not not greeted with the greatest of success. Uh, most politicians in a democracy are more interested in their individual careers than in the truth of things. Um, but I've constantly tried through uh, journalism and through my position as a public intellectual to define the conservative position in a way that makes it credible in a democratic age. And, uh, and I still carry on doing this, often with a sense of despair, I have to say. But um, every now and then, the message gets picked up and 
presented in some slightly more popular form, and I feel a, a little frisson of pleasure. And let me ask you, just given your writings, it, uh, it appears to me that you define conservative thought not only in terms of thought, but in what we might call something of a mood. Uh, how would you define the basic conservative disposition toward reality and, and, and toward human society? Uh, yes, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. The, 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 the mood idea is important. And what, I, what I've come to think is that essentially the conservative is the, some, is the person who's looking out for what he loves and seeking to protect it, um, as opposed to the sort of uh, the left liberal, as we know him from Europe and possibly from America too, who's looking out for the things that he can hate and pull down and destroy. Well, that, is... you know, that means that to, to, that's why the family is so important in conservative thinking. It's why religion is so important. Why, why custom, tradition, ceremony, all the, the, the peaceful things which attach people to life uh, and which are always threatened by our agitated desire to improve things. Well, you speak about the conservative attitude, and I found it very helpful to think in those terms. There's a certain, uh, as we said, mood. There are, are a certain, certain set of intuitions. A, a, a certain set, uh, to use the Augustinian language of loves, that uh, that very much uh, mark conservative thought. And in your second chapter, you really deal with what I think is, is in many ways the central issue that separates conservatism from liberalism, and that is the stance one takes towards authority. And uh, your, your chapter is entitled Authority and Allegiance. But it seems to me that in one sense, uh, the, the, the liberal revolt against authority is the, the foundational issue. Uh, yes, uh, that is true. Uh, um, this is the thing that liberals cannot accept. They cannot accept um, that somebody should have authority over them or that institutions uh, and customs should be more important than their own decisions. Uh, and that's what leads to the uh, posture of rebellion, the anger against what is actual. Uh, and... Um, my view is that it's an entirely negative thing, that that actually we human beings, uh, as it were, achieve our true freedom through uh, obedience. This is contained actually in the Anglican prayer book where it describes, it refers to God whose, whose service is perfect freedom. You know, that idea that freedom and obedience are actually uh, different aspects of the same thing. That is a conservative idea, and it's something that liberals don't seem able to accept. One of the things about conservatism that I think you rightly define is that uh, for conservatives, uh, we forfeit the utopian option. And, uh, and, and that is so the, that the, the, the vision of uh, utopian dreams is something that we, uh, we willingly limit ourselves from, uh, from, from, being, uh, well, from finding comfort in. And, and yet that seems to be where the basic liberal trajectory of thought is headed. Yes, uh, of course, if you're, um, I think one should understand utopianism not as a form of um, love for and desire for utopia, but rather as a way of excusing one's hatred of and desire to destroy the real, the actual. You know, utopias, are, if you look at them, they're all designed as, uh, as to be self-contradictory. People know that they can't be a, a, achieved. And that's why they adhere to them. They, they give a, a, a permanent, open-ended excuse for destroying real things uh, rather than pursuing 
uh, the, the utopia itself. When you think about the 20th century and uh, now within the, the first decade and a little more of the 21st century, and you think about the, the pace of intellectual change, can you think of any other period in human history that has brought about that kind of scale within that relatively short amount of time? Well, I, I can't just uh, straight off. You, I know you're right. Although I think if you look at um, what happened to Athens after the death of Socrates, it very rapidly changed from a, a, a central civilization to a, a, an ordinary second-rate place where nothing of interest happened. So, um, and that was a huge transition. Maybe the end of the Roman Empire was similar. Well, it's hard to imagine in the, in, in the trajectory of modern thought how things can continue at this pace of change. But moral change is taking place around us at a scale that, that really does defy the imagination. I'm thinking of... Of, of just one issue, such as homosexuality, where uh, in in both British and American culture, it had been even criminalized as recently in the United States as the year 2003. And yeah. and, and yet now it's uh, it's virtually on a trajectory where one is criminalized for uh, for opposing its normalization. Uh, no, absolutely. That's a very good example uh, of what um, uh, I think it is Michael Polanyi calls moral inversion. Where uh, some uh, a moral a moral assumption which is universally uh, endorsed is suddenly turned upside down, uh, so that it becomes a crime to endorse it. And I think the, the homosexuality issue is, is one of of several, and it, of course uh, it may be something fundamental to the human condition that when people want to revise the, the moral the moral principles of the surrounding culture, they do it through criminalizing those people who still adhere to them. I don't know, but it's, it's, that's a very powerful weapon, of course. Well, and what we have seen in, in the case of homosexuality is, is the birth of, of new witch hunts of people who don't conform to the orthodox views about it. Well, yes, and we're facing kind of an Orwellian situation before our eyes, just in, in terms not only of the structures of life, but of the structures of language that now uh, accompany this kind of moral change. Yeah. Yes, that's right. You've made a tremendous contribution in the field of aesthetics, and uh, there, there is a newfound appreciation for this field, which is long neglected in the philosophical circles, but also in the world of theology as well. And uh, you have written, by my count, at least four or five major works uh, on aesthetics, including a recent work on beauty. And, and Dr. Scruton, I'd just like to ask you straightforwardly, because this may be the most important question of all aesthetics. What exactly is beauty? I wish I could answer it. Uh, what I would say is that, um, that the, the sense of beauty is connected with our longing to be at home in the world and to be part of the world and to find endorsement in the world and to, to do it through our own immediate experience. And I think, it, therefore, what we regard as beautiful is the thing which rewards our contemplation by, by bringing us into, if you like, an endorsed relation with it. So that, um, the landscape before you, which strikes you as beautiful, is the one which has, uh, has suddenly become a home to you, in which you are not an, a stranger. And I think this is true of music, of course. The most beautiful music has that effect, too. 
the Christian worldview has situated beauty as as one transcendental among several others, uh, the good, the beautiful, the true, and, uh, yeah. and and also the real, such that uh, the thing that is that is beautiful must also be true. The thing that is true must also be good. And in terms of uh, of, of an understanding of ontology, it, it must also be real rather than than merely imagined. It must be grounded in yeah. in in reality. Do you affirm that same sense of the, uh, the the unity of the transcendentals? Well, I wouldn't put it quite in that way, uh, for, because uh, you know the good and the true are absolutely fundamental to living at all, and we have to have we have to keep hold of those. There seems to it seems to be that there are human beings for whom beauty takes a very subordinate role, uh, and actually in the world in which we live. There's a growing cult of ugliness. This is one something which I explore in my book on beauty, um, what Milan Kundera has called the uglification of the world. Everywhere around us, we see uh, a kind of growing indifference to beauty, especially in, in, in architecture and the design of our cities and our immediate environment, as though people want to desecrate the world rather than to consecrate it. I think this comes perhaps from a, a religious deficit but it, but it certainly means that beauty is much more threatened than the uh, the other transcendentals. Well, at least uh, from a Christian perspective, uh, you know, it, it seems that they are all tied together, such that there is nothing that can be truly well true that is not also truly beautiful. And in some sense, the modern revolt is against this uh, this unity. But you know, you talk about ugly. I, I just have to tell you an anecdote in Washington D.C., very close to the White House. As a matter of fact, within almost a visual sightline of the White House, there is a building that the local architectural committee has just designated historic, so that it cannot be torn down. It is what they call, and this is, they say this straightforwardly, the classic example of the brutalist school of architecture. Yes, and it, it is just hideous, and they're more or less saying it's so hideous, it's it's fantastic. Yes, unfortunately, I, I think um, the world of architecture is is perhaps even more penetrated by postmodernism and nihilism than any other part of our culture. Um, uh, and, and you have to remember that that there is a reason for this, which is that uh, architects are paid a great deal of money. And it's in their interest to make, to create a kind of culture of acceptance for everything they do. And the bigger and the uglier, the better. It means that you can make that money without ever embarking on the the path of obedience towards style and uh, and good manners. Well, one of the things that I always like to point out is that there is always the possibility of hiring a postmodern architect. But uh, I find very few who want to hire a postmodern engineer. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably true. Um, well, the the, uh, the the laws of physics are rather uh, resistant to postmodern yeah. ideas of relativism. Yeah, absolutely. You have written an entire library of books, and uh, as we draw this conversation to a conclusion, I just want to ask you: what what is the fate of of the book? What is the fate of reading in the modern world? Yes, I wish I knew could give a clear answer to that. It, it is certainly the case that people are reading just as much, but they tend to read it on a screen rather than in a book. Uh, and it may be that the, 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 the actual format of the book will change into some, like the, something like the iPad or whatever. But I don't, I don't see that people will, will actually cease to read because um, there's something about the written word which attracts not just the mind, but the eye 
uh, and the whole posture of the human the human being. And we know that you can absorb uh, you know, 100 times as much information uh, from a, a written text in front of you as you can from listening to something, uh, even if it's something like a lecture, you know, that we can just read much more quickly than we can hear. So I suspect that, that in the end, the book will survive this traumatic uh, um, turn of events through which it's passing. If you were to imagine how someone might describe your own corpus of work and your own influence, how do you think uh, an outsider might judge the, uh, the, the, the central contribution that you have made? What, what, would, what would an outsider identify as the, as the, the most important uh, emphasis, uh, concern, and achievement of, of your thought? Well, I would like to think that an outsider would say that, that I'm somebody who has tried and to some extent succeeded to re-enchant the world. And in the context of modern thought, that means a very great deal. Uh, as you look to the mo- to the modern, the postmodern, and whatever's coming, as you look to the future, where do, where do you think philosophy is going? Or is that even a, a conceivable question to answer? No, it is a very good question. I think academic philosophy is driving itself into a corner where it will just um, evaporate. But I think a new kind of philosophy will emerge, uh, and people's demand for philosophy, I think, is growing. People, after all, we, because of, we live in an age of skepticism and relativism, more and more people are asking themselves the question whether that is all there is. Is there not some way in which we can think our way through to the meaning of the world? And uh, philosophers like myself who who attempt to do that and to communicate what they have discovered and what they what they wish others to share with them, maybe we'll have more of a voice. I, I think I I see it happening. I think that there will emerge a, a, a new kind of philosophy, not as an academic subject, but as a part of the culture, and that would be great. Dr. Scruton, I feel that uh, perhaps the most important thing I can say to you is one I'm sure others have said, but uh, perhaps not in this kind of context. Uh, the opportunity to repay an intellectual debt is an important but rare thing. And I'm very glad to have this conversation with you. And I want to tell you how indebted I have been to your thinking and your writing and how much, uh, having never met you in person, I have appreciated uh, what you've written. I, I want to thank you for the students who have gained uh, so much by reading the, the books you have written that I've assigned. And uh, I hope that your most uh, recent book will not be your last. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Muller. That's really very kind of you. Well, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public, and we'll look forward to the next installment of The Thought of Dr. Roger Scruton. Thanks very much. Well, that was a privileged conversation, the kind of conversation that we could only wish could go on longer. When someone like Roger Scruton is the other party in the conversation, you're talking to a man who's written an entire library of books. You can pull just any book off the shelf and begin a conversation, but... I think it was important to get to some of the common themes, the predominating interests of his life and work. And I was very pleased with just how revealing he was in the conversation. I really enjoyed that conversation with Roger Scruton because it's the kind of conversation you have that is about ideas worth discussing. As a matter of fact, when you think about so many of the things we talked about over the last 
the last conversation, they're the very issues that we have to talk about if we're going to talk about anything of significance. If we're going to get to the most meaningful questions of life, we're going to have to talk about these very issues. One of the most resistant tendencies of the modern age is its uh, allergic reaction to definitions and to conceptual clarity. And that's where Roger Scruton, and I think both in his oral conversation, but even more so in his books, where he comes shining through. He requires definition, and he he, he thinks, and, and I can hear in the background of that, is training logical positivism. I can, I can understand his concern for definitions, and there's a sense in which that might be the quintessential conservative concern. Let's know what we're talking about. Let's define the terms. When you think about Roger Scruton, I want to speak first of all as an evangelical Christian, and one of the things that does come clear is that there are commonalities of thought between evangelical Christian thinking and the kind of rather secularized conservatism of a Roger Scruton. There are commonalities in terms of the concern for tradition and for preserving what must be preserved, for understandings of authority and meaning, uh, the, the, the importance and centrality of something as, as, uh, as vital as beauty. But on the other hand, there are also some rather significant limitations that come to light. And that came, I think, uh, to a focus, at least in part of our conversation, about beauty and the unity of the transcendentals, the good, the beautiful, and the true. From a Christian perspective, it's very important to realize that nothing can be true and then truly ugly. The beauty is indeed that which is most true. The What is most beautiful is simultaneously most true, and morally it is good. And that's because the unity of the transcendentals is found in the very being of God, who is himself beautiful. He is truth, and he is goodness. So we look at all of that and we come to recognize that the conversation that we can have with secular conservatism is one that can be very fruitful. And let's talk about some of the fruitfulness of that kind of discussion. Let's talk about something like that core issue of authority. When Roger Scruton writes about authority so clearly in terms of his definition of conservatism, setting over on the other side liberalism as resistance to that authority – we come to understand that we're not just talking about something that's observable out there in society and in politics and in modern academic life. We're talking about something that happened in the garden. That's Genesis 3. And for conservatives, authority is important because it's necessary to the maintenance of any reasonable or rational social order. Every order has its own authorities. And one of the things that, uh, that human nature demonstrates is, well, as the old adage goes, eventually even anarchists have leaders. In other words, even the people who say they're most resistant to authority and want to tear down all of the recognized authorities are really setting up some new authority because uh, the, someone is going to define reality. Someone is going to set the terms. Uh, someone is going to be the judge and, uh, and someone is going to be in leadership. Now, when you think about the issue of authority, of course, for Christians, the ultimate issue is the authority of God himself. And, and thus, resistance to all authority is the ultimate sign of, of an atheistic or anti-theistic disposition. The question of which authority is rightful in terms of human politics and society, the, the question of which authority is trustworthy in terms of thought, those are important questions for human beings to deal with. But a resistance to authority in itself, is a resistance ultimately to God. And now, when it comes to how we understand authority in our lives, well, the rightful authorities are the ones that are most rightly aligned with the purposes uh, and the plan of God. And, of course, one of the things we know from a Genesis 3 worldview, from a Christian biblical worldview, 
is that the ultimate authority can only reside in God because any human being or human institution that claims that ultimate authority sets itself up as a, as a despotic totalitarian idolatry. And there again, the 20th century is a catalog of those kinds of idolatries. When you think about conservatism and the, the way that Dr. Scruton laid it out, I thought one of the most important things he said, and it was elegant in its expression, was that the conservative is the one who knows what he loves and seeks to protect it. Well, just think about that for a moment. He, he knows or she knows what, uh, what, what he loves, what she loves, and, and wishes to protect it. That, that is, I think, an elegant and very poetic way of understanding what it means to be a conservative. It's not resistant to all change. It, it, it's, not, uh, it, it's not resistance to, to all critique or question. It is resistance uh, to doing that which is injurious to that which we love. Now, of course, we must love rightly. Uh, the, the love must be right in terms of its object and in terms of its expression. But there is something here that's very important, and, and Dr. Scruton spoke of family in this light. That's why he said conservatives are so concerned about the family, and it is because we love it. Uh, because we love those who are the members of it. And beyond that, for Christians, we love the Lord Creator God who gave us marriage as the central institution of human society for human health and human flourishing. Uh, we believe that without the family rightly understood, rightly protected, rightly, uh, rightly cherished, the things that we love and, uh, and those people that we love will suffer grave harm and injury not only over a long expanse of time, but even in, in far more immediate contexts. When you think about this issue of conservatism, you think, first of all, that, well, Americans are prone to go immediately to the electoral map, red and blue states and all the rest. Uh, of course, you can't separate all of that. But conservatism begins in the pre-political. And I think that's one of the things that Dr. Scruton makes very clear. It begins with the pre-political. It's the disposition of the mind. It's the disposition of the heart. Now, one of the things that marks modern liberalism is, uh, it's, is its dependence upon utopian dreams. And there again, I thought Dr. Scruton was just extremely helpful when he said that the problem with the, the utopian is that he actually hates what is and hopes to replace it with what might be. The hatred of what is is, is one of the defining marks, I think, of, of the modern liberal impulse. Now, there's more to it than that. And of course, in any short conversation, in any well, frankly, one book or one lifetime, it's impossible to do justice to defining all of these issues. But when you think about the disposition towards utopianism, I think he has it exactly right. It is a hatred for what is and a determination to replace it with something else. The sheer destructiveness of that seems never really to enter into the minds of those who, like the students on the streets of Paris in 1968, just clamored for revolution. I loved the autobiographical reference when Dr. Scruton said that he observed those students when he was in Paris and they're rioting in 1968 and said, whatever they're about, I'm about its opposite. Well, that's one way to do philosophy, as a matter of fact. That's one way to do theology. You, you look at the train wreck and say, whatever that is, I'm not going there. And uh, that autobiographical note, I think, explains actually a great deal. When I talk to someone like Roger Scruton, I end up with uh, an abundance of, of new intellectual categories to think about. And uh, as much as I've read Michael Polanyi, whom he cited, Polanyi's idea of moral inversion is something that I'm going to have to go look at a little bit more. I, th I think that's, that's the kind of fertile conceptual handle that really helps us to understand what's going on 
when we raise the issue of homosexuality and that kind of moral change. Well, Roger Scruton's writings, though not directed precisely to those issues, show us how culture depends upon cherishing the things that must be cherished, protecting the things that must be protected, and sanctioning the things that should be rightly sanctioned. And when you live in a world that wants to turn all that upside down, you have a recipe for disaster. One of the other things that Roger Scruton is known for is uh, is a great love for and affirmation of tradition. And again, this is from a basically more secular worldview. He, he describes himself as a typical skeptical Anglican, uh, one who – You'll recall said that uh, he he remains uh, identified with the Anglican Church, but he's uncertain how many of the Christian truth claims can be supported in the modern age. When I have another opportunity for conversation with Roger Scruton, those are the things I want to talk about. But for the conversation today, I have to tell you, I feel very indebted to him for the honesty of his thought and for the fact that he has put so much of his thought into such lucid and elegant expression in this catalog of books available to us. I appreciated his affirmation of reading at the end, and I also appreciated the fact that he is confident that reading will continue, regardless of whether it's on the page or on the screen. I do think, however, that I want to add to his list. He said that reading would continue because it not only stimulates the the brain, but also the eye. I think the codex, that is the book between two covers, will also continue to have a role Because you add to the eye and to the brain the tactile, physical reality of the book, which is also a rather comforting thing in and of itself. I hope in listening to Thinking in Public, this kind of conversation prods you to think more clearly and uh, to think more clearly in order to live as we all want to live more faithfully. I'm indebted to Roger Scruton for the conversation and to you for listening. Finally, I want to direct your attention to a special opportunity coming up on the campus of Southern Seminary. On Friday and Saturday, March 18 through 19, Southern Seminary will host our annual Give Me an Answer student conference. This year's conference for 2011 is themed Important. Join me, Russell Moore, and special guest J.D. Greer as we challenge students to live a life of importance by humbly following God's will. For more information, visit our website at sbts.edu. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time... Keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.